0: Log Talk Radio.
1: everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. And um, basically, if you're, if you're new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We're all about raising everyone's voice and sharing knowledge and just having everyday conversations to remove the stigma and to build support and empower people all around the world. And today we're going to have a really special show um, talking about what other countries are doing uh, for adult day programs uh, called Care Farms or Dementia Farms. And it's going to be a fascinating conversation. And that will be the first hour. The second hour we're going to be uh, speaking With the author of the book called Don't Leave Me Yet, How My Mother's Alzheimer's Opened My heart, and uh, that'll be a really great conversation as well. Uh, Here at at Alzheimer Speaks again. If you're not overly familiar with us, go to AlzheimerSpeaks.com and just check us out. There you will find information about our radio show, which we do every Tuesday. Um, Dementia chats, which is a webinar platform that we do twice a month, where our experts actually have dementia, and anyone and everyone is welcome to come and, and ask their questions. It's uh, just an open forum, um, no hidden agendas, just really about building community and and um, building support with one another. You'll also find our blog there and then just a ton of resources. We have an actual resource directory that you can participate in or sign up for our newsletter if you'd like as well. Um, I have to also thank all of our listeners for making us the number one influencer online uh, for Alzheimer's according to ShareCare, which is the largest health and wellness um, organization in the world, and Dr. Oz. And um, that would not have been possible without all of your support. Each time you like us and click on us, if it's sharing it with your Google circles, your friends on Facebook, your LinkedIn colleagues, um, you know, and, and your Twitter tribe, all of those things have a huge impact, and I'm a firm believer the more information we can push out there, the more comfortable people are going to feel stepping up and grabbing that information when they're in need. Um, it, it's just critical to move removing the isolation that is out there, and together, again, I know that we are making a difference, and we're a powerful, powerful collaboration. In fact, um, If you're not uh, aware of the Purple Angel Project, that's something that you may want to check out, too. Again, you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. There's actually a Kickstarter program going on right now. This was a symbol that was designed by a man with dementia over in the U.K. It's in over 17 countries, um, and they're doing a film about the history and the power of people just joining together for a cause. Um, and so check that check that out. Um, if you don't um, want to contribute or you, you don't have the funds, that's fine. You can still be part of the Purple Angel Project. Just go to our About page, and you'll find more information there on, on how to do that. A few other organizations I just want to give a big shout-out to is um, HealthStar Home Health here in Minnesota. I absolutely adore them to death. They are just wonderful to work on, and they're going to be again out at the Minnesota State Fair, um, and we're going to be doing a big PR rollout at that time um, regarding uh, some fascinating um, information that I can't I can't talk about yet. Um, but I will keep you posted, and as the time uh, comes when I can tell you what that project is, I will definitely definitely let you all know. Um, a couple of organizations people may want to tap into is Alzheimer's Disease International. That is the, uh, the association of all Alzheimer's associations around the world. So no matter where you are, you're going to be able to find the closest um, chapter to you. You'll also get a lot of great global resources as well um, and research and information. That site. If you're looking for a kind of a holistic approach, check out the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. They just do a great job talking about diet and exercise and, and meditation and are just wonderful, wonderful people. Really enjoy working with them quite a bit. And then so many of our listeners are dealing with different types of dementia that might not be Alzheimer's. Maybe it's Lewy body. Maybe it's frontal temporal lobe. Um, Both of those have their own national organizations that have specific information um, to those set of symptoms. Um, There's also the National Aphasia Association, which deals with speech. And aphasia, um, just in case you're not sure how to spell it, is A-P-H. A S I A that's A P H um S I A and um uh- you know, again, all of these are just wonderful, wonderful um, resources for you. Many people also ask about getting involved in a clinical trial. And you can go to the Alzheimer's team on Facebook, or again, you can go to Alzheimer's Speaks just right on our front page. There's actually a really simple uh, survey that you can take in the right hand column to find out if you will qualify for one of their studies. You can really help advance Alzheimer's research by enrolling yourself if you have dementia or maybe a loved one in a clinical trial today. Again, um, there's no cost. You don't have to worry about that. Um, all of that is covered. The uh, last couple of things I want to mention are, uh, again, on our homepage of our, our main website, there the Dementia Action Alliance um, group, which is a a fairly new organization that has started up to really be person-centered and and really attack some of the needs um, that people are living with with this disease, um, are working on a survey. In fact, the survey will be closing, I believe it's the 26th of this month. There are two different surveys. One is for a person with dementia, and the other is for a care partner. And we would love you to fill that out. Um, that will help us figure out exactly what the needs are. Um, for those of those living with dementia, um, we can't guess at this. We really, really do need your input and appreciate it very much. It will take you about 10 minutes um, to do the survey, if that. Very easy to answer. And, again, always open to feedback. So um that's all I've got for announcements for today. So let me go ahead and introduce our, our featured guest for this first hour. Martin Fischer Fisher is a Dutch native that moved to the US and Montana in the spring of two thousand and twelve. And he married a Montana native named Ida. And they have three young children and currently live in uh, Summers, Montana. Martin has his master's degree from the University of Amsterdam in operations research. And over the past 12 years, he has been involved in the development uh, of so-called multifunctional agriculture um, in which farms serve their local communities in a variety of creative ways, including the concept of care farms. And I just adore this whole this whole model. Uh, in the Netherlands, in fact, care farms are widespread, and as a whole, form the largest so, uh, source of day programs um, in his in his uh, native country. Over 1,500 farms empower a variety of um, clients. Over 30,000 people annually they serve. So this is going to be a really um, I think fun topic, one that is um, needed. I love to see creative new new ideas all the time. Um, Martin himself works at A-Plus Healthcare, where he runs a care farm program under the name of LifeSide Farms. In addition to that, uh, he is involved with the implementation of some of the um, innovative new home and community-based healthcare um, that A-Plus um, you know it team manages, so welcome, Martin. How are you today
2: very good, thank you, thank you for having me.
1: Well, I'm really excited to hear everything that is going on before i um, before we get into our questions, though, I just want to give a shout out to a, a few others that are joining us today um, so that everybody knows who who all is on the call. And again, we always encourage people to utilize the chat box um, if you have any questions or comments, and then you can also call in live at seven one four. Three six four four seven five seven that's seven one four three six four um four seven five seven we um we also um have joining us uh Alon, uh Caspi who is a he's a uh dementia <coughs> behavior specialist and gerontologist and uh alan's just a just a doll He He does amazing work, and he also works with me on Dementia Chats. So I'm just going to pull you in and say hi, Alana, and make sure you're still with us.
3: Hi, Lori. Hi, Martin. uh, And Judy, I'm so thrilled that uh, Martin agreed to share his uh, insights about this innovative uh, model and that you are giving him uh, a platform to to disseminate these ideas and these experiences so I'm very excited
1: yeah it's it's going to be a fun conversation <laughs> and then we're also lucky to have with us uh, Judy Berry uh, Judy Berry is um, the founder uh, of dementia specialist consulting and she is really um, well known for um, a concept that she had here in Minnesota called
4: uh, Lakeview Ranch so welcome Judy Hi, Laurie, Thank you for having me. And Martin, Hi. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. All right. Great. The... Uh The other person that we've got
1: um, on the phone, which was a a connection that was just made through a friend of mine, is Joe Cleed, and he is the director in sales uh, and marketing uh, for um, a group called The Landing at Peachtree Creek, and they do a lot with animals as well, so he wanted to call in and participate in the call. But our our main focus is um, going to be with Martin, and then I'll be pulling these individuals in um as we go um as we go along with the show uh for input and so forth so martin first of all one of the questions i I ask everybody who's on the show um just so our audience has a has a, a little personal insight to you have you um ever been personally touched by dementia within your own family or circle of friends
2: well, I um I actually had been listening to some of your previous shows, and I, I I anticipated that question, and I was actually I realized I I haven't had to deal with it so much. I have had to, I've I've met people, and obviously in my work now I I meet a lot of people that live with dementia or related um, related challenges, and um, my my grandma had had some early onset, or I don't know if you can call it that early stages, I would say, and um, just in the last few years i've been learning learning more and more about it um but um what i what i mostly recall from my grandma is that she would ask me every time i met her in the last few years if she if i thought that she was having dementia which was making her very anxious and um i uh, that that's all i have to share in a personal sense and obviously now with in my work i get many heartwarming stories that uh, that i really like one of my favorite is um, one of the ladies who came to our program several times, and she has a very, very short, uh, short-term memory. And um, sometime in the evening after she was at the farm that morning, um, she told someone that, she, uh, somebody who was with her that day, and she said, I don't know what I did today, but I sure liked it. And, um, and then the other day, Elon explained to me how that works, that, the emotional part of the brain holds on to a memory much longer than the cognitive part of the brain. So, yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's a, a great point because it's it's so important to people uh, for people to understand that effect and the impact can be long lasting, and and for all of us, I mean. You know, it's that sense of feeling grounded and peaceful and comfortable, you know, in our own skin and in our own environment. And, and that's just critical to all of us. And it's it's no different. Um, and, in fact, in my opinion, um, is even more important, you know, when someone's having some cognitive impairment there. Well, um, Martin, why don't you explain to our audience what exactly is a care farm or dementia farm?
2: Well, the... Um and kind of the basic idea is is something that is not new, I think, over, you know, many centuries even, and at least up to up until about 60 years ago, many farms would have grandma or grandpa or a or, or disabled brother or sister live on the farm and, and contribute in whatever way they can. And um, about 15, 20 years ago, you know, more and more farms in Europe were kind of reinventing that model and not always for their own family members, but also for people who are either living in in assisted living or nursing homes or people who are living at home and dealing with some sort of disability and challenge. And these are normal farms who just say, hey, you know, one or two days a week I'm going to open up my farms for people to come and volunteer or just spend a day on a farm. And these can be, you know, vegetable farms or farms with animals. It doesn't matter. They're real working farms. Um that just one day a week say you know we're going to set aside uh you know our our high production working but we always have our chores and our things to do and and a lunch to share and on that day they have participants that will come and and for the participants it's a great experience because they come to the farm and on a the farm there's always something you can do you know if you you're not if you're not strong you know you can go collect eggs or maybe maybe feed some animals or if you're 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 not even very mobile you know you can just enjoy enjoy the the hubbub of the farm sit outside and maybe walk walk around a little bit or or just help prepare lunch and so care farms have many different shapes and and sizes and here in montana i have you know there's one farm that i work with is a one acre farm that uh, grows microgreens for um, for restaurants in the area. And then another farm is a, is a 400 acre ranch that uh, does a lot of forestry work. And every farm has kind of its unique profile of what, pe- what matches people's interests. Um, but so basically they're real farms. It's just that once they started opening up to people to come visit these farms, we noticed that when a person is on the farm and they're normally not at all active, they suddenly have a day where they push their limits in terms of physical activity and they might push their limits in terms of socializing with people that are new in their lives. And most importantly, they they feel like they can contribute to something and they're not a patient, they're not somebody receiving care, they're somebody who is giving love, attention, and work for for a community that they can be a part of.
1: Well, very, very cool. And I, I think that that's interesting that you say that, you know, they really have been part of society and um, community f- for ages. Um, but, you know, here in the U.S., I, I think uh, most of us see it as being pretty foreign, but it, it's not uh, – people take family in all the time. Uh, we just don't really talk about it. And um, and I think this whole farming concept and feeling purposeful is, is really neat. Can you give us a um, little bit more specifics about the program that you're building in Montana?
2: Yeah. So um, what what we learned in the Netherlands is that um, uh, over the years, there's been a lot of research on, on care farms and the effects that it has, and it, it has just proven to be something that's at least as valuable as a lot of day programs that are provided within the healthcare system. And so when I... When I moved to Montana, I met Chris Carlson, who's the owner of A Plus Healthcare, and she was just enamored with the idea right away. And she said, you know, within Medicaid, but also many other programs like uh, from the Older American Act program, programs, they said there are services that are, you know, that are designed to make people feel happy or make people, you know, socialize, get out, and do something, and and interact with the community, or at least get physically active. And so when we started, we just started talking to communities, um, you know, the agencies on aging, the mental health providers, lots of different um, uh, partners in the community, and we asked them if they thought it was something they thought would fill a need, and uh, everyone said it would. And I looked around and around, but I couldn't find anything quite like it in um, in the rest of America. So we just we just started talking to Medicaid and figured out what the requirements are, Um to 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 make care farming a service that would be uh would be acceptable within that system and just like i learned in the netherlands we had to you know make our farmers almost into a care attendant even though they remain a farmer at heart we have to make sure you know we run background checks and give them training on how to properly deal with different populations and um and just like in the netherlands we found that um there, If you find this specific type of farmer, they truly have a love for people and love for, for empowering people and seeing what a person can do versus what they can't do. Um, it's just kind of an innate um, thing that a farmer does when he looks at people. And so by finding these specific farmers that really have a passion for people um, and train them, to uh you know to be safe and responsible with clients um we were able to meet all the standards within the different programs that are already offered to people with disabilities or people with aging challenges um in the community and and so we we started with about four farms and just a handful of people and now we have about 10 farms that will open up several days a week to uh, different clients um some of our farms have only one specific population but on most of our farms we like to combine um, older people with younger people with developmental disabilities because they really feed off of each other in an extremely positive way Um, and it kind of feeds into the idea that on a farm you know we're all different and we're all accepting each other um, because everyone can contribute in their own way and so you know if you if you look at a Normal day we we provide transportation for people to and from the farm. We um we have them usually stay at the farm from from 10 to 3 and there's all kinds of chores but obviously the pace is very low because most of uh, our clients you know normally do not work or haven't worked for a very long time and um farmer will just find activities that fit the the participants and they usually spend a long time having a lunch together, which is very important. And many people, you know, don't get a opportunity to actually prepare food for themselves anymore. And people love it. Um, so lunch is a big piece. And then in the afternoon, there'll be other chores. Um, I also have one farm where they process their own wool from uh, from sheep they keep. And uh, we have a, kind of a regular group of uh, older ladies who just love going out there and they will work together on, on dyeing wool or knitting or anything like that. And, and so one important element that we also incorporate is that because our farmers are, in effect, a service provider, we pay them for the day that they are working with the clients. Um, in the Netherlands, that has turned into um, – a whole new uh, new source of revenue for for usually uh, wives of farmers or daughters of farmers, also men obviously, but mostly women that can that can suddenly become a a service provider and have a job on a farm that is related to farming but not actually agriculture itself and in um in montana we're we're starting to go that same direction, and so it's a it's a really neat way to kind of build a bridge between agriculture and the community and the other way around.
1: Well, that's I, that was one of my questions. I was wondering if the farmers get get compensated for the uh, for their their work, um, you know, because you're managing, but you can't be at all these different places at different times, and and how all that exactly works. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I like them to be totally available for my clients because the clients, you know, have all kinds of needs, and their needs might change. And so, if if one day they are just Dealing with with some trauma or 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 you know having some traces of depression, and a lot of my clients, especially seniors, do struggle with depression. You know, some days a walk will be better, and we want the farmer to be free of uh, the pressure, feeling like they have to produce, uh, mm-hmm. so that they can truly mold program around the client. And 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 they do. And um, I recently had a visit from Elon, and he saw it too. Usually for. For people who are new to the idea, they're like, what? There are people working on farms and the farmer gets paid for it? But if you were to come visit and see it, um, you know, you'll see that it is truly, it's like a recreational day program, uh, except that for my clients, you know, it truly feels like they're doing work and they are. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of them, you know, will actually apologize if they can't come to the day program because they, you know, they they feel like the farmer really needs them and and, the, and that they, and you know, that gives them a great sense of fulfillment and empowerment.
0: Mhm.
1: Which is wonderful. I th- I think it's fantastic and I mean I can see where people think oh you know I mean it's kind of like with kids too you know you're if you're using them you know to for, to better your business and stuff but you know our farms have just struggled so much financially too I can see this you know really just being a nice offset um for them and um and a feeling of, of contribution and, and um giving back as well. I, I think it's is a great concept all the way around. Really, really nice. Can you tell us a little bit about you know what type of training or how much training does somebody have to go through um with this or is that something that's ongoing?
2: Yeah, it is ongoing and we um, we do a lot of peer to peer training where where farmers kind of share experience they had and how they dealt with it because um, um, we don't just serve seniors we also serve younger younger people with uh, things like traumatic brain injuries or um, developmental disabilities so um, even though usually we have way less behaviors of of people than they would in other settings we do have some behaviors and so a lot of how to deal with those kind of situations are, are shared between farmers. Um when they start obviously they have to learn a lot about abuse and neglect and safety and um and just kinda of learning about different injuries. Um things like dementia or traumatic brain injuries are just um some something that a lot of people don't know a lot about until it, it hits them, you know, by via a family member or something like that. Um and then you know safety is a is a big factor and all of our farms have to undergo a, a risk analysis on their farm and and um, and you know what? let me just pause there for a minute cuz risks is um is a very interesting topic in my program we we know that there are risks on farms and our clients usually really appreciate being exposed to risk because a lot of people who deal with health challenges are are put in environments where they are free from any kind of risk and it makes people feel like they're not fully alive. And so we we allow risks but we have to obviously, you know, be be careful and mitigate risks of getting too too far out of hand. Um but it 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 um it creates some some moments where you know, I'll I'll have a young a young man who is who's on a farm and, and has been in several different day programs. And suddenly on this farm, he's allowed to split wood and it's just, uh, wonderful to see. And on the other hand, obviously I have to, I have to be, be careful and, and include families and clients in the fact that there are some risks, you know, you can trip on a, on a wire on a farm or, you know, you shouldn't go into, uh, the barn with the bull and, uh, things like that. And so we, we do work and train our farmers on on how to be mindful of risks yet not eliminate them um uh, because it's it's part of the strength of the program
1: okay well in that uh, i know um so many people talk about the risk factor and and again i think here in the us you know we we really try to minimize everything um because of liability over here and yet like you said, we all live with risks every day, um, and, and it's just part of life, and and, and it, it helps give us value um, and enjoyment. Um, and again, you have to you really have to be able to monitor that in terms of what is purposeful, and and um, you know my,
0: yeah, how it's it going to was... affect
1: somebody's engagement in in living life, you know, as a whole. Uh, and sometimes I think we strip people of that here. In the U.S., I, th- I, I think, think we're
2: so getting better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, yeah, we, um, we've done um, over over time. We've we've you know first I had to be extra careful, and I, I could copy most of the things we did in the Netherlands to here. But the risk piece, I really had to think a lot more about and put more things in place. But we have found that if we involve the family and involve the clients in what we do, people are actually. Uh, quite quite eager you know to uh, to allow some sense of risk um and and if we really involve them in in making those choices um it's been yeah, it's been just a wonderful thing you know the the cool thing about a farm is that in this world where kind of everything is global and virtual and and not real a farm is very real and you know you have to watch where you're lo- uh, where you're walking and if you deal with the animals you have to be extremely mindful and on task. And it helps that piece of focus helps people get out of their head and out of their worries. And so the the realness is, is a very important piece. And I don't know that when we started with care farms, you know, fifteen, twenty years ago we'd ever thought that would be such an important piece of the intervention in terms of, you know, healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um but it's just it's just pretty unique we've been exploring other options but usually we find that just the the combination of the outdoors the animals the real work um you know that 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 comes together in a very unique way on a farm
0: mhm
1: Wonderful. I am going to just pull Alon in here. And um, I know, you know, since he deals with uh, behaviors and is a gerontologist by trade, uh, Alon, do you want to just maybe highlight what you see are some of the health benefits uh, of these care farm concepts?
3: Sure, I can uh, relate to health and uh, perhaps psychological and social and spiritual aspects. So uh, Martin uh, shared with me uh, several resources uh, um, a few days ago, and that kind of helped me consolidate some of the things I saw, I saw during the inspiring trip that he uh, gave me in the, I should say, Pioneer and Visionary Carp- Care Farms in Montana. So uh, kind of pulling it together into the document that um, uh, I know you will uh, share after the program uh, kind of uh, that provides more detail on each and one of those do- domains. I want to kind of emphasize, uh, kind of uh, reinforce what Martin said that um, there are many unique aspects of uh, farms that are dedicated for people uh, with dementia. And one of the unique things um, um, is that many of the therapeutic benefits could be realized simultaneously and continuously over the period of time that the person um, participates in the program. Um, and when you look at traditional uh, care settings uh, or settings where people leave, people with dementia, many times uh, you see uh, isolated activities that maybe uh, generate um, benefits in one or two or at most three domains. And, of course, there's exceptional programs out there that do more than that in a holistic way. Um, but the beauty of the care farm, from the little that I learned about in, in recent months, Is that uh, you can, it's the cumulative effect of naturally created qualities of the farm. And that's combined with what Martin talked about, which he told me when we met in Montana, is the unique approach of the farmers to people uh, with uh, intellectual disabilities, traumatic brain injuries, and and dementia. Um, And you know, you can train a CNA, give them you know, hundreds of hours, but if they're not suitable for the job in a nursing home, assisted living, or even home health aides, then um, you won't achieve the desired therapeutic effect for the person. Uh, And and that's not to suggest that uh, uh, every farmer is uh, necessarily suitable for this. There's got to be some selection going on, of course, with the uh, qualities that Martin described. Um, Now, to your question, I mean, uh, obviously being in the outdoors, we know... uh, and maintaining connections with nature uh, that so many people with dementia are deprived of, uh, can they can really benefit from the natural light, uh, you know, activating the vitamin D mechanisms, physical relaxation, uh, alleviation of de- uh, depression, and improved mood. There's even a study that showed improved food and fluid intake, and we know that many people with dementia, particularly in the mid to late stages, uh, are at risk of weight loss and dehydration. Um, And then you have um, um, one of the things that is important to realize is that nature, uh, in the context of care farm, is is a broader term than what we you know typically see as nature reserves, uh, such as uh, natural forests and and wild nature. Um, And you know we can we can talk about it more. Another point is that the farm offers. Uh, Many opportunities for uh, naturally occurring physical activities, Uh, walking to the barn, household chores, gardening, planting, harvesting, caring for the animals. Uh, And as Martin said, it it happens, these are real experiences, real-life experiences, and there's no substitute for that. Many times in nursing homes, we create uh, artificial uh, situations, and I think that people with dementia can sense the difference. the other aspect is the multi, multi-sensory stimulation uh, in a very organic and uh, spontaneous way. Uh, and, we, you know, we can think about smell on the farm and taste of the food and the touch of the animals and hearing the birds and the beautiful sights of the, you know, simply seeing the leaves of the trees uh, uh, in the wind. These could have very healing effect uh, and almost, uh, can also almost be meditative. Um, what Martin talked about, feeling needed and useful. A lot of people with dementia want to continue and be active and, and contribute to their communities, and I think uh, there's many opportunities for that on a farm. Many people with dementia grew up on farms, and um, they loved working in, in, uh, in the gardens and enjoyed company of pets. And we know that the long-term memory remains relatively intact in many uh, well into the disease. So we, re- we can really tap into the uh, chamber, a treasure chamber of uh, unlock and unlock cherished memories from the person's distant past using uh, reminiscence and those things can be prompted by um, uh, activities on the farm. Of course, the farmers need to learn about the life history of the person to reinforce these effects. Um, now, as Martin pointed out to me yesterday, that participation on care farm is not for all people, and they have to be selected carefully to increase the likelihood that will uh, enjoy the benefits of the farm, Uh, and uh, because there's a broad and diverse range of activities on the farm, uh, it provides choice, and and if it's adapted to the preferences and ability of the person, then you can see real learning and and growth for these individuals. And I think one example is learning about the cycle of life, uh, as people on farms can see birth and death of farm animals, for example, and can uh, reflect on it uh, within their own experiences. And then you have socialization and friendships between uh, peers and with the farmer. And, and, and then again, the intergenerational connection that we know are very uh, powerful with this, can be very powerful with this population. Um, and with regards to reduction of behaviors, uh, there's some preliminary uh, indication in research, but we need more studies to demonstrate that. But I have no doubt that when it's it planned well and delivered well, you can see substantial reduction of various behavioral ex- expressions. Um, and then meeting the spiritual needs of people with dementia that are often overlooked in many care settings and living environments. And this could simply, and spirituality, when I talk about spirituality, it's more in a broader term, simply being, you know, simply being meditating by working in the field and connection with nature, with animals and harvesting uh, vegetables and fruits, et cetera. And then the fact that the physical environment um, uh, can provide a sense of being at home, and the small scale of some of those uh, farms, uh, but other uh, physical environment features must be addressed to ensure that they are dementia-friendly, and my document describes those in detail. Um, and then, uh, kind of to, to close, uh, the fact that the unique characteristic of a farm can provide a sense of normal life, which can reduce the stigma that many people with dementia experience in other settings, uh, and the reason is because Farms can provide uh, can provide when farmers are are trained, um, and when with their inherent characteristics, they can uh, provide a strength-based and empowerment approach to the people. And the last piece is respite for family members uh, who are many times exhausted uh, from caring and supervising their loved ones, and they really need a break and time off from these uh, uh, carrying activities so they can uh, rest, recharge, Catch up and sleep, uh, and meet friends, run errands, exercise, and do things that they enjoy doing, and that can reduce that, the social isolation, the burnout, which put them in a better position to care for these individuals. So that's kind of the outline, but the resource uh, provides more detail.
1: Okay, well that that's great, um, Martin. Was there? Or, do you have any comments to what Elon um, had just uh, commented on?
2: Yeah, well, the the respite piece was something that um, that was was kind of an eye opener for me too. I I found that most respite in um, in a home setting that is provided right now in America means that a care attendant goes into you know a client in their care, caregiver's home and takes care of the client for the day while the caregiver goes out to 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 have a day on their own to to rest up and um, what we do is we take the client out and, and give them a day on the farm. Um, and it that has been something that was uh, very, very welcomed by many people because if you get a caregiver uh, to come into your home and take care of your loved one, a lot of informal caregivers or so their partners feel guilty when they leave and they have to be out out and away from the home, whereas some of them would maybe enjoy being at home just kicking their feet up on the couch and having kind of a day where they don't have that concern of their loved one. Um, and so by taking the client away and giving them a wonderful day, we take away that feeling of guilt and, and um, the the joy that the, the client has on the farm that day spills over into, a, you know, up to a week long uh, feeling of, of being a little more content and happy, which is a, you know, a longer lasting effect than just the one day that um, the caregiver has a break. So that's, that's been a really um, a really neat effect that we've uh, we've been seeing here, especially in the in the programs where people you know have fairly high needs, like with dementia, Alzheimer, and the uh, more progressed phases.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I just think the con- concept is just a perfect match. I mean, I think of, of farming, you know, way back when, and I mean, it really was community based. It's a total team effort you know, working together and, um, you know, what a, what a beautiful place to be able to, to, um, match those things up and to have it in a home environment, yet be purposeful, yet be in the middle of, of community and and feeling a sense of, of purpose. Uh, I I just think it's just a fantastic, fantastic concept.
2: And the, the exercise piece is something I'd like to stress too, especially for Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, Um, I remember one farm in the Netherlands that was specialized in dementia, and they would often, uh, one of their big things is that they would take their clients on fairly big walks on the farm, Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
2: and there was clients that came in not, you know, not feeling comfortable to, to go out into the community on their bikes or things like that. And after a few months on the farm with regular walks, um, their stamina got increased so much they actually regained the confidence to to ride bicycles in the communities or uh, or go out into into a shopping center because they were physically stronger whereas if they're home and feeling anxious about going out uh, their physical strength will decrease fairly quickly um and so this, um we sometimes call this uh this type of program a hidden program because people are actually on an exercise program where and they don't feel like they are they're just going to the farm to help and work yep. um but it is a way to trick them into uh, being physically active in a way that feels uh, like it makes sense to the client
1: yeah i need one of those <laughs> <laughs> Have an to yeah. exercise you know so it's like but you know i do
0: but uh, yeah
1: i love doing gardening and, and doing things that are purposeful and, and i don't i don't have a, a problem at all getting down and dirty and sweaty and and doing things if if there's a you know a task at hand that needs to be done and so exactly. um, I, you know i probably really have to implement that More in my life um, and just stop thinking about the the formal structure of exercise because it's just it you know it's it's never stuck with me i'll go in spurts and stuff but the other has really been a lifelong a lifelong thing for me and um and so that's really that's a a nice way to put it it's you know one of those hidden hidden benefits in the program i'm
0: gonna
1: oh go ahead
2: I, I like to call it functional exercise. Um, mm-hmm. I I ride my bike to work here too because it's you know it saves me money, keeps me fit, and doesn't cost much more time than ride, driving my car. And just it's a functional exercise, easy to stay fit that way.
1: Good. I'm going to pull uh, Judy Berry in. Um, Judy um, has just done some exceptional work here in Minnesota with the Lakeview Ranch program where. Uh, kind of a rural setting um, where I'll never forget seeing the animals come into the home. And so, Judy, this has to just be right up your sleeve um, in terms of what Martin is talking about um, with these these care farms. What are your thoughts, Judy?
4: Well, I'm just really excited about what they're doing. Um, as you know, um, my um, need to try something different came from a personal experience with my mom who had, um, you know, been subjected to all the traumatic things that happen in many um, skilled nursing facilities. She had um, behavior and was kicked out 12 times in seven years and in and out of psych hospitals and wound up the last two years drugged. and what they told me, that she had to be compliant in her environment. And um, it really upset me that I had no way to fix anything for her. And what I learned through the process was that the behavior that they were medicating her for, telling me it was part of their um, the brain damage from dementia, um, I saw because I knew her. I saw that her needs were emotional, not physical, and so when I started Lakeview Ranch after she passed away, um, I decided that I would have an environment that focused mainly on the emotional needs of people and um, what i I actually had animals on the ranch before I had residents because I knew how important. That connection could be, and that there was a totally different emotional connection with an animal than with a human for most people and um, so what we did was we also um, in in addition to people helping with the chores and you know the people who were able to do that, we kept people till they died, so we also had to um implement things that would help people in later stages that were not as physically capable. And um, it was amazing to see what the animals could do. And for the people that weren't able to go outside and do things in the barn, we brought the animals um, miniature donkeys, miniature horses, um, goats, sheep. We had a trained um, mini pig and also a wallaby that we got in the last few years and that was an amazing experience for the residents and although the later stage residents couldn't tell you what the wallaby was they were just amazed because it lived in the house with them and they bottle fed it and you know it would come jump in their laps and you know lick at them and mm-hmm. um, those kind of emotional connections were huge and we went a little bit further and trained some of our animals to help with range of motion. Um, we would have a horse come in, and they would, we had pe- animals that would pick something up, but they would bring it back to the resident and stop 10 feet from them, so the resident had to grab for it. And mm-hmm. it was, Martin was saying, it's those hidden things that um, really make a difference. I mean, we yeah. didn't have any anybody complain about having to reach for a toy from an animal um, (laughs) or, you know, but they would if we tried to get them to stretch their arms.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: And, um, you know, so the whole thing and our program also included a period of time of about two years where we combined at-risk teens in the communities, um, the surrounding communities and we would bring them in for a 12- or 24-week program, and they would make – they would learn how to train the animals to do some kind of um, activity with, that would happen with the resident, but they also had time in the house with the residents, and they would sort of um, pick the resident that they sort of connected with. And mm-hmm. um, at during this program, at the end um, – it was just amazing. They had made connections with people, the first probably non-threatening emotional connection that they'd ever had. And when the kids came in, many of them they' all most of them were teenagers, It was the attitude was, "I don't want to be here," and they were forcing me to do this. And when mm-hmm. they left, they were coming back and volunteering, and they were crying, and you know, it was amazing to see what happened when you mix um, intergenerational stuff with the animals, with the residents with dementia. And when Martin talked about risk, you know, we Mm -hmm. were very aware of that when we started. There's a lot more laws here in the U.S. than maybe there are for those kinds of things abroad. But Mm -hmm. um, we've never had any trouble because... All of our families signed a risk waiver when their resident moved in, and they were aware of the things, that that it wasn't under the laws of a nursing home and that we were not removing all the risk, but Mm -hmm. they were very much in favor of their loved one living with a quality of life and some purposeful activity, even if something would happen. I mean, we took people fishing on a boat, And one guy on his way back walking to the bus, um, he collapsed and died. And, you know, that was our first death from anything or that was associated with some of this other activity. But um, the family, I mean, they were sad that he died, but they were happy that he died coming back from fishing, doing the thing he loved the most in his life. And if he died, you know, three months sooner because he was out maybe walking more than he should have or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. they were happy. So, you know, what we found was that you need to create um, on a farm, it's already there. As us doing a ranch, we brought animals. I mean, we had animals that lived there. We had people who helped throw hay bales and, you know, doing all kinds of stuff that made them feel like they were contributing. And Mm -hmm. our whole focus there was to focus on those emotional needs that go unmet in most places because of lack of staff and lack of staff training and lack of staff support. And like you or Martin said, you know, you can train and train and train, but if that person doesn't have that in their heart, I mean, we had staff who hated the animals, just belly ached all the time about having to feed the dog or, you know, something like Mm -hmm. that. And those people are just not the right people for what we're trying to do. But we were able to, our focused population were people like my mother who had been in and out of many places and in and out of hospitals and come in, totally snowed on drugs. And we would get rid of the drugs, the psychotropic drugs that they have them, you know, um, on. Mm-hmm. And we'd watch their personality come back. And then we would be able to meet the emotional needs of that person. And that was the main focus that, um, that you know, and then creating a purposeful um, life, I mean, where they could go out and garden and they did their own canning and they you know, taught me many, many things. But Our this needs. whole thing with care farms is just right up what I've been doing. And we have been able to eliminate 93% of all behavior in people who had previously had multiple, multiple behavior hospitalizations. So I've learned a lot. Um, I'm in the process now of sharing what I've learned in um, – It's just been an amazing journey, and I wish Martin all the luck in the world. I hope we get to meet one day soon, and um, I would like to be involved in helping people understand the needs of people with dementia as it relates to farm animals and um, any type of activity that creates purpose.
1: Oh, well, that's wonderful. One of my favorite stories, and I, I share it every now and then when we're talking, but, you know, because here in the U.S., again, we, we kind of can be stick in the muds with our rules and not be as person centered, you know, because everyone's running around with their checklist. And I, one of my favorite stories you told me was about the time you had the surveyors out, and one of the, I think one of the horses was in the solarium yeah. and pooped, you know, right inside the house. And, you know, the surveyor was just the probably surveyors. shocked. And the staff just scooped it up, cleaned it up, and just said nothing like uh, you know aromatherapy, which I mean, it's just it's just such a beautiful story. I mean, you're out on the farm, you know, animals and people have accidents at times, and you just deal with it and move on, you know. Yeah. And instead of making a big stink over it, you know, <laughs> and and um, I think there's so many really a big good,
4: stink. Yeah, good. But, you good know, the mayor later told me on the exit interview Mm -hmm. thing, she was just amazed at how the staff handled that situation because Uh I said that's the first time the horse has actually taken a big dump like that and it had to do it right in front of her. (laughs) (laughs) But, But, um, you know, our neighbors, when they tried to shut us down when we first did this and they couldn't do it um, on, you know, um, oh reasons that we were doing something wrong in the area they actually went to the state with the fact that we had animals and we were bringing them in the house and that was dirty and it was a danger to the residents and Mm -hmm. we got a huge support from the state of minnesota back to these neighbors saying they're creating a quality of life for these residents and they're taking every precaution to make sure that things are as sanitary as possible, but you know, let's give these people a chance at life. And I was yep. just amazed.
1: That's that's wonderful. Well, thank you, Judy, and keep up the keep up the great work. I'm going to go ahead and pull uh, Joe um, Keaton. Joe, do you want to just tell people a little bit about what you are up to? We only have a few minutes left here in this hour, but I want to um, make sure that we let people know what what you're also doing with animals.
5: Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much, Lori. Thanks for what you do and uh thanks so much for sharing Martin and, and for your insight as well, Elon and, and Judy. And um uh we work for a group called uh Peregrine Senior Living and uh, animals are such a big, important part of what we do every day. We have goats and pigs and chickens here and kind of that same type of a care farm mentality. I've been taking so many notes as you've been speaking, Martin, and uh, much appreciated. And one of the, the purposes that, that we have found that has been so so valuable is something that our, our president, uh, Stephen Bowman, has talked about so many times is that families that are dealing with dementia are dealing in a state of crisis, and there's so much fear that goes uh, along with even walking through the doors of a memory care community or anything along those lines. So what we found with our animals, not only do they give our residents purpose and unconditional love, but there is that sense of joy that comes along with that, that instead of uh, children and grandchildren being afraid of going to visit grandma or their, their mother, that it's, I can't wait to go and see the chickens, or I can't wait to go and see uh, the, the pig and, and feed him a carrot. And then the residents that have dementia, they have this sense of pride of, let me take you out back and show you the, the chicken coop, and, um, uh, and and this is the way that we, we get our, our pig to come around the side here. We call them this way, and there's all of a sudden, they have something to teach their families and a sense of purpose that just wasn't there before, that they're able to just have joy rather than uh, that moment of crisis and fear, but it's something that only animals can bring, that only that that farm life mentality can bring, and I really think it's a beautiful thing. Thanks so much for, for what you're doing, Martin, and for, for sharing that. It's something that we hope to employ here at, at Peregrine Senior as well
1: wonderful well thank you so much for joining us and um alan's got uh um a paper that he has worked up and we're gonna have I'm gonna be adding I'll do a whole nother post on this with just information. I know Judy had sent some information too on some research and Martin and so I will I'll be adding some more onto the blog for our listeners to be able to grab that information. Um because there's just there's so much I've got limited space here on blog talk on on what I can put and and last night it was giving me a, a run for my money on what I could even do within that <laughs> with that
4: frame.
1: Um, but we will definitely get this information out to people. Martin, I'm going to go ahead and pull you back in uh, to the conversation. I just I cannot thank you enough for um, bringing this to the U.S. and allowing us to have this wonderful conversation today. Um, I think there's a lot of excitement, and you know, I'll do everything in my power to help raise the profile of, of what you're doing and working with Elon uh, and Judy and, and Joel as well. Um, I just... I, animals are really important um to all of us and that feeling of purpose, that feeling of connection. And uh sometimes I think we we tend to overlook that, which is a which is a big mistake. And so is there any um anything else that you'd like to share with, with our audience um before yeah, we before sure we just, wrap up here?
3: Sure,
2: real quick and one thing that uh, that I noticed that w- once people with dementia are a little further along in their process of the disease um that sometimes they get they get pretty anxious when they're not with their loved one um then obviously at some point they might not even recognize them but uh, so we've we've been inspired by a great program in uh, in England which is called dementia adventure where they where they take people with dementia and their and their loved ones out uh, and doing outdoor activities um, up and including rafting and rock climbing and whatever people may be capable of. And we're not going to go quite as radical as that, but we are starting a program where where it's kind of a combination support group and fun outings, and the fun outings that we're going to do are going to incorporate either kind of geographical settings like big overlook points where people can look at a valley and say, hey, what, what changed here in the last 50 years? Or visiting uh, natural areas with guided walks with uh, rangers and things like that because they are those are usually topics that can tap into older memories and they can be fully participant in that. So that's that's another thing we're working on and and um, I just wanted to thank you and Joe and Judy and Alon too and and Judy a, a special kudos to you it sounds like you're a you're a wonderful uh, groundbreaking pioneer and um and that was a uh, that was very inspirational for me to hear
1: wonderful what is the best way for people to get a hold of you should they go to um the uh flat what is it flat flathead care um farm uh for wordpress or where where would you like to push yeah, the- people to
2: right now that would probably be the best if you could maybe put that on your blog that would be great but the uh, yeah, www.flatheadcarefarming.wordpress.com that's our own kind of not not very professional website but we're we're still in our starting up phases but that would be a great one and and if anyone has a question i think um my contact information is on that site as well and um in if anyone has interested in is has interest in starting this in their own communities i I am glad to share whatever we figured out and share our processes and and things that we developed because um, I don't think I can go over all over America and help help implement it, so the least I can do is share what we figured out and um help others do it on their own as well and we may be looking at Minnesota as a place to start and I know Elon and some others are interested in that, and I, I hope to be able to contribute to them as well.
1: Well, that'd be wonderful. And on the radio um, show, we do have on that page your website, your email, and your phone number that you gave us. And um, if you're interested in getting a hold of Elon, uh, his website and blog is also listed on there. And then, um, Judy, I'm just going to ask uh, what contact information you would like to give people.
4: Oh, they can go to my website, um, Dementia Specialist Consulting, which is www.dementiaspecialistconsulting.com, and okay. all of the are on there also.
1: Okay, wonderful. Um, and thank you for joining us today. And then, um, Joe, do you have any particular um, website or email address that you would like to give people as well?
5: Absolutely. Um, you can go to. You can either follow me on Twitter at, at Joe Clyde, which is at J-O-E-K-L-E-I-D, and then our website is www.peregrineSeniorLiving.com, and that's P-E-R-E-G-R-I-N-E SeniorLiving.com, and there you can see a little bit more information about what we do. But thank you so much for everything that you do, Lori.
1: Okay. Well thank you. And then Alon, I'm gonna pull you in and see if there's any um like I said, I have um your blog and your website listed and then we'll be posting uh, this article that you've done um regarding kind of the benefits um of of care farms as you see it. Um anything else that you'd like to add?
3: Uh, well, I have a section in the resource that you're going to post, uh, the last page. is about safety considerations, and I know we talked about it today, um, and people can read about it a little bit. Uh, but I wanted to share one quote that I heard recently Where a researcher, I think did a research in Europe with this population, and he said, the paradoxical effect is that if you pay less attention to risk and more attention to living, it actually reduces risk. So I think that kind of uh, reinforces what Martin said. And, of course, we, we must put, uh, we be very thoughtful and put, uh, carefully think about uh, measures and procedures to uh, put in place and to assess it over time because dementia is a moving target. Uh, but we also need to shift away from a fear-driven approach to one that is uh, more filled with hope, uh, purpose, and meaning in life.
1: So agree. So agree. Well, I,
3: I wanna thank you all for your time
1: again today. It's just been absolutely fabulous to have you all on this call and um I um uh, like I said, I am looking forward to um to hearing how these care farms progress. I would love to see these uh for for dementia specific um here in Minnesota. I love the idea of the multi generational and, and just that, I mean the the benefits are just, I think, absolutely massively huge, and it would just be wonderful to see. I've only seen one other um, kind of day program that's a little bit different from our standard structure here in the U.S., and that's one up in Canada where they've done um, more like a health and fitness club and made it like that. But I, I love this this farm concept of really being able to touch and feel and and purposely um be part of the community. I think it's just a beautiful concept. So thank you all again, and we will we will be in touch um, very soon, getting updates. I'm gonna go right. ahead and and um, go into our mid program um, highlights, and then I'll be introducing our our second guest today. Uh, For those of you that didn't uh, hear our last radio show, it was quite interesting. We had Kathy Brogy on, and she is kind of the lead in charge of the Purple Cities Initiative, which is all about uh, creating dementia-friendly communities. In fact, Kathy, along with myself and many others, were highlighted in the Parade magazine this last Sunday. Um, Paula Spencer Scott, who wrote uh, the book Surviving Alzheimer's, which is probably one of the best books, out there that anybody can get um, did a, just a beautiful article about the grassroots effort and the changing uh, format and the power of one. And so if you haven't seen that article, you may want to do that, but I would also encourage you to go ahead and listen to, to that last radio show uh, next week, we are going to be having a Canadian group on who is, and we're going to be talking about a movie called cracked, um, which will be, very fun. Uh, we're also going to have some of our leaders here in the U.S. on Memory and Alzheimer's Cafe, and I'm hoping to get the Kickstarter campaign for the Purple Angel on, but we we might even be doing a special show on that. Uh, we're just trying to coordinate schedules. Again, if you're not familiar with the Purple Angel program, just go to alzheimerspeaks.com to the About page that will give you information there. On our homepage, page, uh, right up top, there's information on the Kickstarter program where you can help pull this documentary together of how this um, global symbol came to be and how fast it's spreading. Uh, today, we also have a Dementia Chat Set... Um, Dementia Chat Set... Uh, I'm going to keep saying setting... Session. Um, and that will be at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Uh, 2 Central, 1 Mountain, and noon Pacific time, and that's 8 o'clock if you're over in London. We'd love to have you join us. Our last session was back on the 9th, where we discussed uh, dementia farms. Actually, uh, Alan had brought that up, and that's how this show actually came to be. But the majority of our time, we spoke about the effects of changing terminology and the impact that it has on those uh, uh, dealing with dementia, um, many people right now are getting um, they're diagnosed uh, with dementia or lewy body and all of a sudden now it's uh, mild cognitive impairment and and kind of the backlash of of what is happening with that. On the blog, you will find um, the grassroots movement, um, which again is about the Purple Angel program, so you can go there to get that Kickstarter information. Um, There's also a link to the Power of One, um, the article that uh, Paula uh, Spencer Scott wrote in the Parade article. Uh, I also noted if you're out in Pennsylvania, There is a great play called My Mother Has uh, Four Noses, and that's just going to be out there for a short time, but you will not want to miss it. I've seen it like three or four times, and if I was out in Pennsylvania, I'd go see it again. Um, It's a great musical. You'll laugh, you'll cry, um, very poignant um, and and very well done. And let's see, last thing I want to mention is the... um, Dementia Action Alliance Survey closes out on uh, June 26, so we'd love you to participate in that. Uh, Again, you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com on our homepage there. It'll get you right to that survey. Um, There's one for people with dementia as well as one for the care partners. so, if you could help us out by taking that, we would highly, highly appreciate that. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our our next guest here. Um, very excited to have her with us. Uh, Constant Handset is an author, a poet, and a business o- uh, owner. Her poetry has appeared in the Com- uh, Comstock Review, um, Rattle, and uh, she's she's just kind of been all over many many journals. Very well known. Um, for her literary work, and the uh, Ode to Beige, Beige was published in Diane Lockwood's uh, Crafty Poet uh, in 2013. Her first book, um, which is called Don't Leave Yet, How My Mother's Alzheimer's Open My Heart, was actually a finalist in the Pacific Northwest Writers Association Memoir uh, Competition in 2011, and was published by She writes Press in twenty fifteen She has also recently been been named a finalist in the national Indie Excellence Awards for memoirs so uh welcome, how are you doing today,
6: Constance? I'm fine, thank you, Lori, for having me on the program and for today, you can call me Connie. Okay. <laughs> that's fine
1: okay,, okay. Thanks, thank you, Connie. I never quite uh-huh. know and so it's always I, I appreciate well, you telling me instead of tripping over my okay. words. Here. Con- <laughs> I used Constance
6: for all my writing. Um my father name gave me the name Constance and it's sort of in his honor when I began writing poetry that I signed all my work with Constance.
1: Oh, that's
6: nice. So, uh,
1: yeah, how sweet. How sweet is that? Well, mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Needless to say, you've been touched by dementia because the book is about your your mother's um, Alzheimer's disease. Can you give us a little background just for our audience um when you started to see mm-hmm. signs with your mom and and you know just kind of a little history there would be would be helpful. Okay,
6: well, that was the difficult part. the signs the signs were not uh readily visible at first. It took, uh, I think, well into her last year before she was diagnosed. When we could say, "Oh, this is why mom was ex- more angry with us than normal," um, because she was, she had an outlook on life that was, you know, it. She grew up with a, it was a hard family that she lived in, and she developed uh, some bitterness, negativity. And so when she became more bitter as life went on. We couldn't really see the signs. Um, It was only until afterwards that when she was diagnosed that we could say, well, that's why mom uh, left or circled around the park when we were having a party. She didn't really want to join us. Um,
1: So it's a little muddled in our case. Okay. And that's, I think, Mm -hmm. pretty typical for so many. It's it's hard Uh to... To kind of figure figure that whole thing out. Um, one yeah. of the questions that that um, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people struggle with, who are dealing with dementia, mm-hmm. is should I write about this or not, and who do uh-huh. I share uh-huh. it with? Um, mm-hmm. How did you mm-hmm. decide to write the book, and did you did you struggle with you know is this going to invade anybody's privacy? I know for some that's a really big issue, and then for others they just feel oh. no, this really needs to be told.
6: Well, absolutely, on on all those counts. Um, You know, I began, I was kind of, I say I'm a poet who stumbled into memoir because I was writing poetry about family and my mother and our relationship, and I realized I had an awful lot to say about what was going on. And so I decided to write longer stories about our, our relationships, and it became mountains of material that I realized I could turn into a memoir. And uh, when I had completed a first draft, I actually had my brother and my sister both read it. Because I was concerned about how they would be affected, uh I do talk an awful lot about them in the book as part of our you know our family relationships and the dynamics of our relationships and so I was concerned about their uh reactions, and uh they actually said, "Well, you know, this is the way things happen uh this is an important story um it was definitely an important story for me. I needed to figure out, my, my mother and I had a very complicated and flawed relationship. And I think it was only through the writing uh, that I could make some sense out of it. My, my poetry teacher down in Santa Cruz, her name is Ellen Bass, and she used to say, Connie, what is it that you're really trying to say? And I, by that time, I had chapters of all these scenes of my mother and um after she was diagnosed and being in the hospitals and finally in the care units alzheimer's care units and It took me uh a lot of a long time to discover that I was trying to be that perfect daughter for her and you know, this this was a revelation to me. I, I was a constant. I'm still discovering things about myself, about my mother and our relationship. So I think it was very important, uh, and I think everyone can understand also how when illness strikes the family, uh, the things that you discover about yourself, and uh,
1: it's just important for your mental health, in other words.
0: Mhm.
1: Yeah, so. it writing really is healing on so many levels. I mean if, mm-hmm. if you share it with anyone or not. Um it mm-hmm. it really is a way to release things and I mean, you know, I I was mm-hmm. on a journey with my mom for 30 years and and you know, my dad died of mm. cancer, and I will, uh, you know, I'll write mm-hmm. stories that are so old, and I'll still be crying as mm-hmm. I'm writing them. But I know that they're yes. beautiful stories, and and mm-hmm. they're it's it's great to relive. But it's it's almost like turning on a faucet of just letting the emotion flow through you, so it doesn't get stuck, you know,
0: and yes. come out yes.
1: sideways. Um, so yes. yeah, it's, exactly. It can be a, a tough thing, you know, um, for a lot of people to to put pen to paper and then to actually go through the the work, the hours and hours mm-hmm. of work of putting a book mm-hmm. together. Um, I don't think everybody realizes how how much you have to really want to write the book
0: <laughs> to get it done because
1: well, it is a lot of work. This is, it's very true, and
6: you really uh, – have to um, from your own writing too to become that objective uh, onlooker and say, am I presenting a certain scene the way it really happened? The way am I, you know, pre- am I showing my mother in a certain light uh, that is justifiable? Um, am I making um, sense of it all? And um, the the writer. Dina Metzger said that to remember is to remember, to put all the parts of our lives, to make it a whole. And I just love that quote. Um, And I felt that's what I was doing to to the best of my ability. But again, like you said, in order to write and to put it on paper, you do have to have some objectivity so you can go back and say, oh, that sounds right. You know, I can leave that alone Mm -hmm. and try to, edit it through all the drafts. It did take me five years to get from one point to the next.
1: Well yeah. and it's it's interesting too, I would think, because um I you know, I haven't I I haven't written my book or published uh, them, but I've shared stories mm-hmm. with my brothers and they're like, Well that's not how mm-hmm. I remember it, you know. Well, and I'm like, you yeah. you weren't even there for this. So you, you were not uh-huh. it at all. But but I mean people See? do have their different perspectives. Um
0: exactly
1: of And so did you run into that at all with family? Oh, definitely. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
6: Definitely. My sister is six years older than me. My brother is four years older. My brother has told me that he has no recollections of being young in our house when we were growing up. My memories are just seared into my brain. Uh, My sister, on the other hand, she'll remember things quite differently. And so... It is. It we all have grown up in different families. We're the same there's siblings in the same family. But depending on your age and where you were, if somebody was living at home or if they'd already gone to college, we had different families. Mm-hmm. And that certainly plays a part in the whole storytelling. Yeah, mm-hmm. it
1: it is it is interesting dynamics. I mean there's just no ifs, ands or buts mm-hmm. um, you know, about that whole thing and you know, and how that how that plays out, and um, mm-hmm. I, I know sometimes you know people can get into actual arguments over it. Um, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of what happened and and how, and uh, I haven't run into that with my own family, but I know others others have, and um, can be you know really disruptive and and it kind of almost turn dysfunctional for some some families. Um, so. Well, I've been very
6: grateful to my siblings because they've been more than supportive, and mm-hmm. I think they also realize too you know the the story itself is an important one that so many people are facing today um, and it's just increasing at such an incredible rate back in two thousand when this first uh when my mother was first diagnosed. I didn't really know of anyone else who was going through what we were going through not in my immediate um you know family or uh or um friend situation although as as time went on we found out that uh, my mother had three sisters and within a 2 year time frame they all developed alzheimers so for, there was a genetic a very genetic uh, background here. Wow! Uh, but, mm-hmm.
1: but now, does that scare you at all for yourself? Oh,
6: absolutely, mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but it's like anything in in terms of you know writing the book. Um, it's you. You. I reached a certain point of acceptance, uh, and that's how I cope. My I have my coping strategies mhm it is it is a- it is a scary prospect, and my children I have a son and a daughter, and they're both aware of my history and i think even though you say all these things when when it ultimately happens, you don't know how you'll react but to my the best of my ability, I can say that you know i've at least with my own mother i've i know the ramifications and try to reach a point where I can be accepting and uh, keep communicating and all that that goes along with it. Yeah, it's,
1: mm-hmm. you know, it, as I get older, you know, I used to say, no, it doesn't mm-hmm. bug me. But, you know, it it, mm-hmm. it is in the back of my mind now. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but there's, there isn't really anything that I can do about it. And Nope. Um you know, nope. I think you still have to live your life to the fullest and just Absolutely. you know, continue to to move forward mm-hmm. and um you know, just see how, how things play out for ourselves. And but it it mm-hmm. could be really easy to go down the rabbit hole. It could be really easy to go oh, down def- the rabbit yeah. hole. And yes, stuff. So do do your siblings so can't, talk about it at all or
6: um not very much, not like me. Um <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but they but they do listen mm-hmm. but i just feel that you know like you said we we can't control what our minds are going to do but we can control what we feel yep and so as long as we can um still live with a certain uh compassion and dignity and treat all our fellow people Especially when they are dealing with uh, families who are dealing with dementia, it just uh that is just some important points to keep in mind yep. yeah definitely yeah.
1: definitely
6: mm-hmm.
1: um can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about how how did you cope with your with your mom's disease well I think first of all uh
6: it came with the point of uh, learning how to accept what was happening in the first place. My mom was obviously, like all people at the time, fighting for her life, and she had a very difficult time. She became her behavior, uh, she was becoming more angry at the world, at us, at her kids. Um, couldn't understand at all what was happening to her, she was completely out of control. It was quite heartbreaking. Um, So I think trying to accept the fact that uh, uh, like this is an example Um, she was always my mother was always very meticulous in her grooming and clothes and um, she, when I would visit her she would uh, wear mismatched clothes or things that needed laundering or she would bite her nails so I think one way of of dealing with it was to um, remind myself that it was important to compliment her for the small but the really necessary accomplishments she made every day. Like mm-hmm. if she didn't want to go down and get her hair styled at the little beauty shop downstairs, I'd say, "Well, I like the way your hair, you know, looks." You know. I like the way you brushed it today. It went a long way to diffuse the, uh, the disappointment in, in her living situation. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so I think accepting and uh, realizing that her problem-solving ability was diminishing. Um, she, uh, There's a story of when she first uh, got a roommate in her assisted living center, and one night her name was Anna, she she walked into my mother's part of the suite and stood over her bed and my mother thought she was going to get hit and she was struggling and yelling because she thought Anna was going to hit her. Well, she was thinking back to something in the past um, and so she, you know, she couldn't make that connection of, she couldn't problem solve for herself in that moment and say, oh, this is what's happening, but that was the past. So, I think I trained myself to listen to her more carefully, um, to accept her. Every time I visited, I told her I loved her. We told old family stories, even if she repeated the same stories over and over and asked the same questions over and over. You know, I think you try to be patient and calm, and before you know it, I was laughing unconsciously about something and she would too, although she wouldn't know what she'd really be laughing about. So I think um, between the huge adjustment, um, I, was, I had a wonderful spouse at the time, my siblings, my children, both friends who gave me support. Um, you know, and it, it's... As I wrote in the book, it was a lot about letting go of so many things, um, especially guilt. Because I wondered constantly, since I lived far away from my sister who was on the front lines of, the, of this, so to speak, I wondered if always if I was doing the right thing. You know, if I was doing enough to help. So, um, but it, it can crush your spirit and. I needed to let go of that. I needed to let go of uh, the guilt and understand that this disease was progressing the way it was going to progress.
1: Mhm.
6: Um, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that letting go is just so, massive, isn't it? Just uh, It really it, is. It's difficult. That's something we're taught to do. Nope. you know, it's It's almost nope. like we're taught to hold on to all the baggage mm-hmm. and all the things we can't mm-hmm. control, but it's it's such a gift once you can get there because it, it. You don't realize how much it distracts you. That that guilt it just is clawing at you know at every nerve um, in your body mm-hmm. constantly, mm-hmm. and we almost um, just get used to it until it's gone, mm-hmm. and then it's like there's this comfort, and you're like, how do I get mm-hmm. in this soft, cushy spot? You know that feels mm-hmm. good, where I, I can laugh more, I can play more, and. Um, mm-hmm. I can be more connected, and it's just, it's very, uh, for me anyways, I just, I found it just as one of the biggest gifts I probably will ever receive in my entire life, and I hope it's something that I, I don't ever lose the ability to do, um, and not that I that, don't struggle that, with it, you know, um, Right. I've gotten a lot better, a lot better Oh, that's all excellent. Yeah. Excellent point. Um, mm-hmm you know and i loved how you said you know you you know some of uh, your coping um and kind of lessons mm-hmm. learned were just listening mm-hmm. to her more and accepting mm-hmm. um i mean mm-hmm. just those are such basic things um but mm-hmm. we don't do them well in society we really we're so fast paced i mean we listen but we don't yes. always hear you know yes. and we don't always process and we don't always validate um, yes. But we listen, you know. Yeah, I heard. Ya.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. Type of thing. yeah.
6: But when you're sitting down with someone with dementia, Alzheimer's, that's just the opposite of what you have to do. Life is everything is slowed down, right? It's slowed down to the to the point where it can't get much slower, and it mm-hmm. it forces you to listen more carefully. And some people can be patient and and if you can that it, it's wonderful like you said it is a gift mm-hmm. and uh i feel the same way i feel blessed that i
1: was able to yeah it's you know yeah. one of the things when you were talking about slowing down it can't get much slower one of the things that came to me when you said that was it just getting mm-hmm. used to the silence getting comfortable mm-hmm. with
0: silence mm-hmm.
1: that that we are more uh-huh. than just talk you know there's uh-huh. there's this energy connection that we have that again we kind uh-huh. of take for granted or that we don't really look at the nonverbal signals um all the different mm-hmm. ways that mm-hmm. we communicate um are so mm-hmm. powerful and that slowing down and getting us to feel comfortable or even recognize that there's silence you know and right, not having right. to fill it but just
0: mm-hmm. kind
1: of you know relaxing mm-hmm. in it and learning from it um is, mm-hmm. is quite powerful um, in and of mm-hmm. itself, too. You also mentioned about talking about old stories and how all of a sudden you would mm-hmm. just, you know, break out in laughter. And uh, oh my God, mm-hmm. I remember so many times with my mom <laughs> doing that. And it was, people would look at you like you're nuts. And it was just like, but you just I had know. the best time. And it was just, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it wasn't planned. You know, it just right. happened. But um, right. did you and find. And those were the best moments. Uh huh. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, did you find you know? For me, one of the things my mom taught me was to to kind of be able to play and be silly because I had gotten so serious as an adult. Oh. Um, uh huh. But but you know, I laughed harder. I cried harder. Probably too um, Yes. You know, but I just I felt everything at a greater level. Um, yes. And, definitely. And. Mm-hmm. I, was so much more appreciative of, like you said, the little things of, you know, going over those old stories were probably one of your favorites, you know, and most meaningful Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. just so simple but so powerful when we allow it to happen. Right. Uh, And perhaps
6: some stories she would remember, some stories she didn't. And when she didn't, it was like opening a new world for her. It was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm learning something new today, Connie. She'd say, I didn't realize that was happened to Grandma or whatever. And the, the important thing was for me to not say, oh, don't you remember? I mean, you know, we never, of course, you don't say things of this sort. You just, you just say, uh, well, this is what happened, and don't you think that, you know, uh, don't you think that is funny? And she, and uh, that was. That was great. Sometimes it was just that little glint in her eye. She could be uh, clever and uh, witty without even realizing it. Um, but then again, uh, again, accepting what would happen after that, sometimes she would fade away. But like you mm-hmm. said, silence, you know, that was okay too, reading those body signals, Um Getting back into the moment—that was all. All was
1: part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you. Um- yeah. Kind of talk about uh, at times feeling like an imperfect mm-hmm. daughter. Can you? I, I think yes. many of us have those thoughts if if we're a daughter or son or granddaughter or neighbor or friend. Uh-huh. But that those strong feelings of imperfection and not living up. Can you can you explain kind of how how you felt like an imperfect daughter? Well, I think that
6: goes back to so many years. Um, Growing up in uh, a very small town, uh, we were Catholic. We went to craft Catholic grade school. Had a lot of fear instilled in me early on in terms of religion and with my parents. And it just seemed like um, that was, uh, well, that was learned very early on. Um, so when she became ill, It was it was hard to know if I knew what to do for her, if I knew what the right thing to do was. Um, we, she had such strong opinions about everything that what I thought many times I thought she would um, disagree with. And I don't know, it was just... Difficult, and mm-hmm. I think especially when she became ill, we mm-hmm. had to find the an attorney, uh, sell her house, mm-hmm. get an auctioneer. The idea of selling her all her belongings at such minimal prices, for that was her only income. I questioned everything along the way, and I think that you know, emphasize the fact that I was trying to to do everything just right. You know, trying to be just that perfect person for her. And mm-hmm. as, as I as I discovered, I was trying to be the perfect sister as well for my sister who was there, trying to go as many times as I could to visit, trying to be as, as much help as I could. My sister and I had phone calls. Since I'm on the West Coast and she's in the Midwest, our phone calls—it was nothing to have a three-hour phone call to discuss mm-hmm. something or other about about our mom, and so yeah, so that feeling of imperfection kind of grew, and it, from from feeling that within my family to my sister. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, I can
1: see. I, I know my. My brothers had, I mean, and I, I felt at times where, uh, you know, I wasn't doing enough. And my brothers looked at uh-huh. me like, you're doing a ton, what do you mean? And uh-huh. But they uh-huh. really struggled, I think, with um, not, you know, the guilt and not uh-huh. feeling like they were doing enough or not knowing how to do enough or not living up to, uh-huh. one of those things was not living up to my standards, my rules, because I was oh. kind of the,
0: the, oh. the girl in uh-huh. charge.
1: And uh-huh. um, we had a really interesting conversation over that, where I thought, "Wow, I had no idea um, I was pushing them away by you know wanting mm. things done certain ways because they, you know they couldn't fit, but they just did things different than I mm-hmm. did." And um, mm-hmm. but I was so concerned about mom and dad having proper care um, that mm-hmm. I was really oh, yes. uh, a fierce taskmaster more than more than what I. Even knew that I was uh-huh. until a day we had a conversation and and uh, you know I realized that they had missed out and um you know didn't have a lot of memories that I had and it was because they weren't uh-huh. there and uh-huh. I said I felt uh-huh. awful but I thought you know what I'm not picking up all that guilt either you know. <laughs> <laughs> they no, they you can't. Said, they could have <laughs> said something too. You know, they got to be responsible that's too. Right. Otherwise, I'm going to fall what? right back into that trap I just got myself out of. You know, <laughs> so uh-huh.
6: um, well that's important too. The each 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 person has to take responsibility for for you know what they can do and what they can't do. We we don't all work alike, and we can't all think alike. And no. um, that'd be pretty boring. <laughs> It would be pretty boring, but it's a given. And especially in families. We um, yep. don't all agree, and it's coming to that compromise. I was very fortunate in the fact that my sister and I, uh, well, we we kid ourselves as, as adults. We're kind of like interchangeable people. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. we think a lot of like, so that, that helped. Um, but it uh, still... The the idea, I'm still a perfectionist. <laughs> uh huh. Still a perfectionist, uh, especially like in my writing. I want, and especially telling my mother's story, which was really our story. I mean, I mm-hmm. wanted it to be as best as it as it could be.
1: Yeah, to to honor her. Oh. Is there a, a yeah. favorite story or two that you'd like to share with our audience at all? Um.
6: Regarding, like, uh, oh,
1: just just anything that comes to to mind, Um, and I know, I mean, when people ask me that Mm -hmm. too, it's hard because there's just so many
0: Mm -hmm.
1: precious Mm -hmm. moments and stuff. But yeah, Um,
6: well, there was a, a. my mother had <laughs> she my mother craved pizza. she was a pizza holic, and um even in the her first assisted living center when she lived there, of course they didn't serve pizza or a lot of pizza, so my sister would take her out uh once a week to get pizza and um one time. I had visited her in her, uh, I think it was probably right after she had moved into this brand new facility. It was just wonderful, and this was back in Illinois. And my son was there, my daughter, my husband, and we were all sitting in the country kitchen. It was still the morning, and she was getting hungry. And I do write about this in the book, but it, it still makes me laugh to this day. Uh, so we we're all sitting there around the table, and she—I could see her. She was getting a little agitated and getting hungry. And my daughter says, my daughter was about, oh, she was late teens, I believe, and she says, "Grandma, there's there's apples and bananas right there, going in a little bowl on the on the counter. You know, would you like a banana?" "No," she said. "I'm I'm really getting hungry to go to Rosati's for pizza." And I looked at my watch and I said, "Well, Mom," I said, "You know, that gosh, it's like." 9:30, 10 o'clock. We've got hours to go before we go to Rosati's, and so, you know, she is starting to stew a little bit, and then my son reaches in his, uh, you know, he carried a deck of cards to, to play cards on the plane and everything, and he said, Grandma, let's play cards. He says, let's let's uh, play rummy or play war or whatever. She was always a great card. Uh, card person as well loved card games she taught my son how to play poker when other little boys were playing go fish anyway um so they started a card game and before you know it her mind is completely off food and she's you can just see the little twinkle coming back in her eye and that that was a great moment my my kids were so exceptionally thoughtful my mother uh lightened her her mood just lightened it was just a great great moment until she realized again how hungry she was Uh uh, and we did and we did end up going to Rosati's and the pizza and uh but she uh my kids were just uh really lifesavers that day they knew how to
1: help me and help their grandma it was
6: Uh great
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Kids are just wonderful, aren't they, with the whole process? Well, they, they
6: sure help. And my kids were exceptional. They had no qualms about, yes, we're going to go in there and see Grandma. And and actually they would um, pay attention to the other people on the floor. And, you know, this is where I always say about the importance of treating people like they are people, they have their dignity, and they mm-hmm. would talk to you know, greet the others, talk to them, ask them questions or you know,
1: just little things to help make their day go a little bit yeah. better. Yeah, yeah, I remember my daughter doing that too. I mean, it really became part mm-hmm. of the community and, and there wasn't that fear, you know. Uh-huh. Um it, exactly. It was, you know, and they got to they got to know them. Um, I mean, she mm-hmm. would even go up and help when family would visit and go, oh, well, they, you know, they mm-hmm. might not have seen this. And, oh, this is what we've been doing. And it was just, it was mm-hmm. kind of amazing to watch the kids mm-hmm. interact mm-hmm. and uh, the brilliance mm-hmm. of it um, because you see so many mm-hmm. adults that are so scared, so scared. Oh, yes. um yes. Stuff, definitely. So big, big yes. difference there. Well, what a what a fun story. Yes. Um, I just I think that this is amazing. One of the things that I that I find interesting too with your story is, you know, you mentioned that your sister was kind of the primary caregiver, and I don't uh-huh. know if I've ever read a book where the, because it, usually it's the primary caregiver um, who's uh-huh. who's writing the story, and so I I think that uh-huh. it's really interesting that um, even though you weren't that person, you were you were so mm-hmm. intricately involved. In everything, probably yeah. more so than what you even realize, um, in yeah. terms of mm-hmm. of supporting your sister and your mom, um, mm-hmm. and you know mm-hmm. your family in general through through this mm-hmm. whole process and in honoring, you know, the mm-hmm. the disease process and the journey that comes with it. Um, yeah, is is pretty pretty neat. Um, did your kids have any thoughts in terms of you writing this book and? How, how it was well, going to play out? Well, they were very uh, encouraging. I mean, all along, um,
6: they knew I was writing something. Um, actually, m- probably more than, than I realized, I was writing in notebooks, and mm-hmm. I hadn't transcribed anything into the computer. And I'd say, you know, well, I've got this story about um, when I was a kid with Grandma, and before you know it, um, to there, you know, a lot of encouragement, the stories kind of added up. Uh, and then I transcribed everything into the computer, into uh, what I realized was becoming a memoir. But they were, so they, they did know what was going on, and they were very encouraging. Um, I think they realized how important it was for me to write about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
1: are they are they writers themselves at all? Um no.
6: No. Um actually, I have a, a my grands my first grandson turned 7 and he actually is the one we're finding out who likes to write stories. Uh-huh. <laughs> he um he is he'll be in the second grade but he reads at a level much higher and he is he's been writing little stories he's putting together uh uh little booklets which is oh. interesting cuz
1: i go oh good another writer <laughs> oh very what? fun very fun yeah yeah Gosh. well very very neat well i just um mm-hmm. you know i i love um to be able to, you know, read these books and then to share them with others and you know, everybody's mm-hmm. journey is so different yet so similar. And yes. there's there's so yes. much that we can learn and share and um you know when I, I give these books out and, and things when mm-hmm. I speak and people just find mm-hmm. so much peace at knowing that they're not on this journey alone. And that some of the things they've tried, others have tried, and it hasn't worked for them either. And they got frustrated or sad. <laughs> and, and then the joy of, of something working and those beautiful, touching moments. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, your words can really help, um, even for someone who's not comfortable writing, you know, reading words mm-hmm. can help us heal as well. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. it's so nice to see, uh, you know, a, a large collection of these books coming, coming to the force now. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, so, I, I, again, I thank you so much for, for sharing um, a piece of, of you and your family, with us all. Um, thank it's, you. It's. I know it's not an easy thing um, to always. Do you know to to mm-hmm. share such a personal piece mm-hmm. and such a personal side? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Did you did you yeah. have any fear when you first pushed the book out of you know what will people think or what will they say? Because I hear that from a lot of authors too. Well, to be honest, um, I really didn't.
6: Um, it was my story. It was my mother's story, and. It, it it was the truth, and it, I I really didn't have that fear that most people have. I told it like it was, and it, it yeah I I just didn't have that fear, which made it easier perhaps to deal with uh, rejections and <laughs> mm-hmm. sometimes wanting to give up. But I just kept pursuing the fact that well. I wanted people to see another viewpoint because mm-hmm. it is helpful. I've read an awful lot of memoirs myself. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it is. Words are, are powerful things and they can help us in so many ways that we don't even know possible. It's be It can be just on such an unconscious level you realize, well... I remember back when I read this story and there was this one phrase I can remember little phrases that people write or tell in their stories and um so I I did not feel the fear I just uh I felt the importance of it
1: yeah and yeah. there's huge huge um importance factor there so I'm I'm so glad <laughs> that you um <laughs> That you did share your story, and it's just a—you uh, mm-hmm. know—I have to say the the cover is just beautiful. It's just kind of this soft green, oh. and it's mm-hmm. just—it's—it's it's very comforting, and it—it it just um, even the the feel of it—it uh-huh. uh, it just feels soft and comfortable in your hands, um, which not all books yeah. do. And um, well, and I—I'll was, was,
6: oh, go ahead. I was just going to say about the cover. We went round and round on our cover. Um, and it began as kind of a grayish look. And then when the title, the subtitle changed the opening my heart, I said, well, there's, there's, it, it allows an element of hope and a hope in per, maybe perhaps how the person who's, like for me, the writer, that there's hope in the story, that there's some kind of uh, sense of, understanding and compassion and that's what the cover i was trying to get at you know like you said it's mm-hmm. very soft colors but it,
1: it's hopeful. Yep, i like to in oh. here um just a, a simple graphic that you have mm-hmm. which is uh mm-hmm. kind of a it's a dandelion you know a dead uh-huh. dandelion that's got uh-huh. the you know kind of the white fluffs on it and then a a few right. just little seeds floating away, and I uh-huh. just thought when I was reading this, I just thought, well, how poignant uh-huh. is that? You know, because yeah. uh, with cognitive impairment, things just kind of float away. Yeah, you know, they do. Um,
6: they do bit by bit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah.
1: Exactly. exactly. Well, thank you for noticing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I wish you great Hmm. success with your book, and um, I hope uh, that you'll put it in. I don't know if you've put it in our resource directory or not, but if not, I would love you to to add that in there. Um, I'll send you out um, instructions in case I haven't done that. I can't always remember myself what I've done.
6: (laughs) Okay, no, I haven't
1: received that, but I would be happy to. That would be wonderful. That would be great. And then do you want to give people your website and how they can go ahead and reach you? Yes. Um, website is the best.
6: It's com. And on this you can find uh, my blog. I include poetry because that is still a huge part of my life. Um, also, uh can reach me at, right on the website through Twitter and Facebook. There's a link to all of that. Wonderful. So, perfect. Yeah.
1: Well, good. Well, I like okay. I said, I'm just uh, thrilled you were able to join us today and, and share your story. Um, again, the name of the book mm-hmm. is Don't Leave Yet, How My Mother's Alzheimer's Opened My Heart by Constance Hanstead. So thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Thank I, you, Lori. Appreciate I, it. Thank you. I look forward to um, to our next show next week. We're going to be talking about the movie Cracked, uh, which was uh, done up in Canada. And then we're also going to be speaking on Memory Cafes and Alzheimer's Cafes as well. Thank you all and have a blessed week. Bye now.